back in the Gospel of John, and you know, my, my hope was to look at verses 6 through 9, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, but I unloaded my library last night. And I, I, I said to folks, the sermons have, are going to, they're going to increase by 15 minutes, I think, at a minimum. And, uh, well, I'm just going to preach verse 6. So I had three verses, three, four verses, but verse 6 is what we're going to get to here this morning. I'll read verses 6 through 9. So John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for the simplicity and depth of your word. We ask you now, Lord, that you would help us understand the scriptures. Help me to teach with clarity and with great simplicity. May I assist your people in comprehending these things. May they not be overcome or overly burdened by the explanations, Lord. Assist me by your Spirit in declaring your purposes in Christ from your word. May your people be built up. May those who do not believe, believe. In Christ's name, I pray, we pray, amen. John the evangelist and gospel writer, in, in these verses, one, verses 1 through 18, is giving us a sneak peek at the persons, the circumstances that fill the content of his gospel. And as we looked at verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the center and the focus of this gospel, is the eternal God of heaven, that he is different from God with regards to his person, but they have unity with regards to their essence, that he is the omnipotent creator of all things that are, and that he sustains all life. And he doesn't only sustain natural life, but the spiritual life of his people come from him. He is the light that shines in the darkness of this world, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Now what John does is he begins to introduce us to another critical person of this, from the gospel. The prologue of John's gospel, verses 1 through 18, are, they're, they're, they're one piece you know, some pastors preach verses 1 through 18 in one sermon. And, you know, I bless them for it, but it's impossible for me to even think of doing that to you good people. Verses, but verses 1 through 18, the, the pro, it's called the prologue, the introduction, maybe. But these verses are akin to a playbill. If you've ever attended a play, and as you enter, you get a playbill with information about the play, the actors, the venue. John 
is subtly noting for us the key persons, the key themes, and the key truths that we need to understand as we read this gospel. Now, John focuses upon one who was sent and dominates the opening portion of the gospel. And the office he would undertake as a witness was vital to the fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. This one that he is going to describe for us this morning is it is vital to understand who John the Baptist is to understand the gospel. So let's look to John. And first, the man, John the Baptist. And then what we'll look at is the prophetic background to his ministry and the purpose of his ministry. You could, there could be three points. I just have them as two. The man, John the Baptist, and the prophetic background to his ministry and its purpose. It's interesting that John really does not elaborate on the background of John, his genealogy. But he does this also for the Lord Jesus. And in doing this similar thing, he is actually contrasting the two. How? Very subtly, he does this. Note the subtle distinction. There was a man sent from God. The word, I say subtle distinction because in verse 14, we'll see that the word becomes flesh. And not only does the word become flesh, become a man, but repeatedly in this gospel, Jesus says, that he was sent by the Father. So you can say, in, in a sense, that Jesus is also a man sent from God. The subtlety is contextual. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is the sustainer of all life. Those things can be said of him clearly. Yet he is a man. He is the God-man. Yet John is not God. He is only a man. He is part of the all things that were made and that are sustained by the Son of God. Yet, in God's providential dealings with the human race, what we can call the history of salvation, John's witness was essential because it was prophesied, it was prophetic. His witness, and it's prophetic in two senses. It's prophetic in the sense that it was embedded in the Old Testament scriptures and in the nature of his proclamation. He was a prophet and the prophet of Old Testament prophets. In God's providential dealings with the human race, in salvation history, the history of salvation, John's witness was essential, it was prophetic, for men to come to faith in 
the Son of God. Now, very interesting here, because there is an important point of application. Christian, so is your witness. If you have been called into the fellowship with into the fellowship of God's Son, if you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, you ought to walk as he walked. Every aspect of your life must be an ever-increasing witness to the Son of God. So, in your relationship with your spouse, there ought to be this ever-increasing witness to the children in your home and maybe to the folks that come over or the people that know you more intimately that there is this increase in the work of God in your life and you bear testimony to the work of the Son in that aspect of your relationship. In your relationship with your children, there ought to be this ever-increasing witness and testimony to them that you believe these things, that they are true. Not only your words, which are vital, but your character and your conduct ought to grip the heart of your children. In your relationship with the extended family and those outside of your home, your co-workers, there ought to be this ever-increasing light. Every aspect of your life. Every aspect. And specifically, you ought to be a verbal witness to the mercy and grace you have received from the Son of God. And this is really simple here. And this is how I would challenge you, because you could sit here and say to yourself, yeah, I do that. But make it, let's make it practical. Do you pray for ever-increasing opportunities and boldness to witness? Let's say you're, let's say you're, you're timid to do that. Right? I still get nervous when I talk to unbelievers, walk up to strangers and try to preach the gospel to them. I'm not, it's, I get nervous, right? But do you pray for ever-increasing opportunities and boldness to witness? God, help me. Put more people in front of me. Let more creditors call or whoever it is who calls your house and give me boldness to somehow make that a spiritual conversation. Yes, sir, I have a great debt, but you know what? Debt is greater. However you want to figure that out. So do you pray? Do you take every increasing opportunity to witness? Every opportunity the Lord gives you. You just try. You, you, you've been praying, so now you're attuned to the opportunities that God gives, and you take them, every opportunity he gives. You ought to. And do you make every opportunity, and that increasing to witness? You see, there's a difference between praying, taking, and then making and saying, I'm going to go to Walmart to witness to somebody. I'm going to go down to Stewart to get some ice cream. I'm going to sit there with an ice cream cone, and I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to do it. See, because God sends us into the world to be witnesses. So Jesus says to his disciples at the end of the gospel, as the Father sent me, so send I you. 
And we ought to be witnesses. Do you pray? Do you take every opportunity? And do you make opportunities? Because our witness, as we will see later on, if I get there, is vital to the mission of God, as John's was. And John was a man. He was a man. He was a man sent from God. As in times past, when God spoke to his people, a messenger precedes or prepares the way for the mighty words and deeds of God. For example, let's look at some passages here. Let's exercise our fingers. Let's exercise our fingers so if you're sleepy, you can wake up. Noah, when God was preparing to send the flood, you know what he gives to the world? He doesn't give them umbrellas. He gives them a preacher. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, look at, the, look at what Noah is called. 2 Peter chapter 2, the Lord says, and it says, and did not spare the ancient world. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So who, uh, who was there in the world as the day was dawning that man would be judged by means of a torrential rain and the earth exploding with water? Noah, preaching righteousness. Not only Noah, but Moses. Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, you know, we, we don't have time to look at all these verses, so I'll cite them. You can write them down. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, when God is coming to judge Egypt, to cast plagues upon that land, and to deliver his people with a mighty arm, what does he do? He sends Moses. And that's the terminology that's used for Moses. He, he is sent from God in those verses, Exodus 3, 10 through 15. Now, when the people are getting ready to, to go into exile, now, before Jeremiah, there are many prophets, but right there, they're, they're, Jeremiah even records the exile. But God sends Jeremiah to preach to the people. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 7 uses the same language of being sent. God sends his faithful ones. And John is sent in the same vein. So this, this one was a man, yet he was a divine messenger. He was sent from God. He was sent from God. Again, the, the application is, is clear here for us today. Why did God send a gangle of us up here from Florida? With all, you know, with our teeming hordes of children. Gaggle, thank you, my daughter. That's why he sent my daughter to help me with my pronunciation. Why did he send us? You know, me with my teeming horde of children, and Eric, and and many others. And why did he keep, those of you that are here, why did he keep you here? He kept us to be witnesses to him. You see, 
the coming day of judgment, right? We're living, the New Testament makes it clear we're living in the last days, right? And who, who has God left here to witness to that coming day of judgment? Not only to the coming day of judgment, but to the mercy God displays to sin, his people. He has left us here. So, he is a man, and he is a man sent from God. This one was a man, yet he was a divine messenger, or a messenger of God. And his name was John. His name was John. Well, who is this man John? Again, it's important for us to, find, to, to see who this man was. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. So he was a man, he was a man sent from God, and his name was John. John. And in Luke chapter 1, we hear of his descent when his birth is announced. So if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, here we begin. There, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And his wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So Zechariah's pedigree, if it's the same Abijah, Abijah returned with the exiles, Nehemiah chapter 12, I think, there's a record of the priests, and Abijah is mentioned more than likely. This is, uh, he's from this line of priests, Zechariah. So faithful, those that came back to restore the land. And not only was he faithful with regards to uh, tradition or looking back, my relatives were faithful. They returned to reestablish the worship of God, but he himself was Righteous, he was walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. And his wife, she was a daughter of Aaron, a descendant of Aaron. So she also was of the priestly line. He could have served as, as a high priest. But they had no child. Well, the Lord was going to fix that. Look at verse 13. Angel appears to Zechariah while he's Zacharias while he's ministering to the Lord, and the, he's afraid. The angel says to him, "Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John." So we know who his mother, his father is. We know who his mother is. Two faithful men and women, and they are praying for a son, and God fulfills their desires. And what is amazing is that it is through the prayers of his people that God brings about the fulfillment of his word. Isn't that amazing? He had promised, we'll see this, he had promised that John the Baptist, he didn't say it that way, but he had promised that there would be one that would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And he uses the prayers of his people to fulfill his promise. And he fulfills their desire too. Our God is gracious that way. I, don't, I saw the quote several times this week. 
where Spurgeon is writing back and forth to his mother, and uh, his mother says to, to him, um, he said, you know, I, I always prayed, Charles, for you to become a Christian, but I never thought you would be a Baptist. And he says in return to his mother, well, God knows how to answer prayers above, uh, abundantly above what we ask for. His family was Presbyterian. so, But God knows how to do that. He can fulfill beyond what we ask. Sometimes we ask too meagerly. We pray, we, we, will, we will pray, Lord, save our children. But how often do we pray, Lord, save our great, great grandchildren. Save all of them. See, we need to learn how to ask abundantly above what we can ask for because God is the cheerfulest giver. He loves to give to his people. So he answers their prayer. In verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This joy and gladness, of course, is, uh, I, I think it's, uh, uh, it, of course, it's related to having their desire fulfilled to have a child. But I think more clearly, and we'll see it in uh, Zechariah's praise to God after the birth of his son, it's because of the redemption that would draw near because of his coming. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now look at these three descriptions. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, uh, if you, or we don't have the time to do this, but if we look at all of John's interactions with the religious leaders of his day, with the people who were something important, they despised him. And even how he dressed, right? The, what he ate, how he looked, he was greatly despised by men. But in the eyes of the Lord, he was highly esteemed. Ultimately, young people, this is important for you. That is what matters. It's not the way the world views you, the way that men in this world esteem you, but that before the Lord, you are great in the sight of him. Don't compromise for the sake of your friends. Don't compromise for the sake of family members who may want to lead you astray for the sake of this world and its culture. No, seek and desire to be great in the sight of the Lord. Next, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Um, uh, so there, two, there might be two things here. The first, of course, is a Nazarite vow, Leviticus chapter 13. So uh, part of... John's ministry was this um, biblical asceticism where he was set apart for the Lord. And in being set apart for God, he would have took particular vows. Yet also, I think what might be here is the admonition. Remember, he's the son of a priest. So Moses, uh, so, so um, excuse me, John the Baptist, he's a priest. He's in the priestly line. And one of the exhortations that was given to the priests 
to Aaron specifically after his sons had sinned is that they were not to drink as they were ministering and serving to the Lord. They were to abstain from drink so that they would have a clear mind in the service of God. They were not to be intoxicated. So this, this might be there. There was, there was to be this clarity of mind, this biblical asceticism, not unbiblical whipping and scourging, but prescribed by God for a particular people at a particular time. It's not in it's not uh, restricted or placed upon us today, but for John, this was a, a way of displaying to the world his separation from it and his devotion to the Lord. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So there would be this supernatural work where John would be a believer from his conception. And he will turn, so his, his uh, lineage, his, his personality, or what would make up his person and his ministry, and then the result. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him before the Lord his God, and here, of course, an implicit statement of the deity of Christ called the Lord, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The result, and then the manner. He was to be a prophet and the prophet of prophets. He was supposed to preach a gospel, and he did. A gospel of grace. Nevertheless, he was to call the people to repentance, to turn to the Lord their God. Now, to turn the hearts of the children, excuse me, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And uh, we'll see what that means here, but this gets us in not only uh, to look at the man himself, but at the prophetic background to his ministry. Turn to the Gospel of John. Turn to the Gospel of John. And in his interactions... In his interaction with the religious leaders, we hear this statement from the lips of John. In verse 20. Now, uh, I'll read verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John. And now we're, we're going to focus on the prophetic background to his ministry and its purpose. We, saw, we took a look at the man himself. What kind of, where, where does he come from? What kind of man would he be and what would he be doing? He would be proclaiming the word of the Lord that many in Israel might be saved. And now we're going to take a look at the prophetic background to his ministry and its purpose, its, its broader scope and purpose. Verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites 
from Jerusalem to ask him. Now, doesn't, doesn't that give a particular, knowing the background, knowing that he's a priest, doesn't that give a particular light to the fact that that's who they sent? They're the people they sent to talk to him. Who are you? He confessed and they did not deny. But he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you, you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Of course. And he answered, no. He answered, no. Now, so uh, John says he is not Elijah. Okay. But now l- listen. Go to Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 11. And this is important. Matthew chapter 11. Keep your thumb in Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you something in John. This is important for for understanding. So John, uh, same chapter, chapter 1, he says he's not. And he said, I am, verse 23. Look at verse 23 in chapter 1. We'll continue to read the section. And then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the one, uh, excuse me, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He understood this about his own ministry and who he was. So, look at verse 29. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know who Jesus is. This is the one that's coming that's greater than he is. But look at Matthew chapter 10 now. Like, hold all that together. I'm going to bring it together in a second. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 11. This is the prophetic background to John's ministry. Matthew chapter 11. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, and he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Um, yes. And when John had heard in prison, he's already in jail. He doesn't get released. He gets his head locked off. So when he was preaching that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he's greater than me, and all these things that have already passed, now he's in jail. And he sends, he hears in prison. When, uh, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the one, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? John, so, so he says he's not Elijah, and then he asks this, this question. But he had already been preaching that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's preaching these things. The Lamb of God, excuse me. John didn't have it all put together. He was a man. And although particular things were revealed to him, not everything was revealed to him. And what Jesus does is Jesus clarifies for us who John was in this chapter. Look at verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, and uh, of course he cites the passage from Isaiah. Let's begin before. Verse 9. 
But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Up to this point in history, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because he points to the Messiah. He anoints him in his baptism. And he proclaims the greatness of the Messiah with greater clarity than any of the Old Testament prophets. In 1 Peter, it says that the Old, 1 Peter chapter 1, 12, in that area, 12 through 15, I think, it says that the Old Testament prophets, they searched the scriptures to find out what time and what place this coming one would arrive. And John the Baptist says, that's him greater than any man because of the accuracy with which he points to the Messiah, yet it was unclear to him. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and so we have the close of the Old Testament canon here. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Who does Jesus tell us he is? That's Elijah. That's the Elijah we were waiting for. It's John the Baptist. He says it again in Mark 9, 13. Look at Mark 9, 13. I think a bit of greater clarity here. And they ask him, you know, you say you're the Christ, you say you're coming. Why do the scribes say, 9-11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told him, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Jesus, no, that's Elijah. He is the one who was to come. Now, uh, so, so Jesus makes it very clear. This is the promised forerunner of God. Look at Isaiah 40 now. Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 1. Come, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I've punished her enough by taking her into captivity. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is what they would do when a monarch would march into an area. They would prepare the road. They would repave it. It would be perfect. Dip, holes, valleys, curvatures in the road. They would make it straight so that he could be seen and he can come with a lot of pomp and circumstance. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and every hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of God is going to come. There's going to be this one who prepares, who's going to be announcing the preparation of the way. The way must be prepared for God's glory. And what does John say about, what does the gospel writer John say about John the Baptist? He was a witness to that light. What light? The light of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Malachi quotes Isaiah at the close of the canon. The canon is about to close. Isaiah is speaking prophetically after the exile. God is going to come and deliver his people. And when the canon closes in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. What's Jesus doing in the temple? He says, he comes and he flips over the tables. He turns everything over. You turn my, my father's house into a den of thieves. The Lord does come to his temple. And John the Baptist prepares his way, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launder's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. He does this by dying for them. So the messenger comes and prepares away. Now, Malachi expounds even more. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. The canon is closing. Chapter 4, verse 4. I'll read from verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which, is, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what is he going to do? He will turn the, the hearts of the fathers to the children. That is exactly what the angel says John the Baptist does. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. If John doesn't come ushering the way for the Messiah and preparing the hearts for the people, God will judge the earth with a curse. That's what the text clearly says. So John in his coming what is he preparing the world for? God, John is preparing the world to receive the light of the gospel. And that is what all preachers do. Preachers are to prepare God's people to receive the word of God. And in light of the, uh, a broader application, this is what God's people ought to do. We ought to be preparing others to receive the light of the glory of the gospel. You know, God did not leave us 
on this world, in this world, after he saved us, solely to enjoy all of our pleasures, all of the pleasures that this world provides us. He wants us to have those things. He's gracious, good, and compassionate. He's given us salted caramel gelato. He is great and good and kind. Yet also we have a purpose in this world. And our, our purpose is to point men and women to Christ. Because if not, if they do not turn, if they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord will strike them with a curse. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when your relatives, friends, co-workers, whoever it might be, you don't know when the Lord will call them home. We have a great privilege and a great responsibility. And John the Baptist encapsulates this for us. I said I was going to make an application here. Um, just two texts. Luke 24, and I'll just read them. Well, I'm going to do some explanation, but Luke 24. After the resurrection, listen to what Jesus said. Verse 46. Luke 24, 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. John came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. And now after Christ's work on earth is accomplished and he's going to ascend to heaven, what does he say to the 12 and to the others that are there? He says, you are witnesses of these things. In Jerusalem and in all the world, the gospel must be preached. Unless you're a, a Mormon, there aren't any living apostles today. And they're wrong. There aren't any living apostles today, just to clarify. <laughs> what, what does that mean? That the witness of the apostle, which is crucial, and, and you can't downplay the nature of their witness, is not like mine. I didn't see it with my eyeballs. I didn't see him walking around this world. Their witness is a very important part of the testimony of the gospel. But they hand down that baton. And as John was a witness, John was, um, so as the sun is setting over a valley, John is in the shade. He's in the shadow. He doesn't see things clearly, and he's pointing to the sun. The church, once the kingdom of heaven is open, as Christ dies, he gives up the ghost, as it says, and, and he rises from the dead, and he inaugurates the kingdom of God. The church is standing in the sun of the glory of Christ and is pointing to him with greater clarity. The apostles are at the head of that. They are the foundation upon which we proclaim those things. And we continue that witness today so that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives them this charge. He says... Remember, it says to all nations, repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached. And he says in verse 8, but you, 1 8, Acts 1 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, in Kerhunksen, Wawarsing, Accord, 
pine bush, everywhere. He can't just be talking to the apostles. He's talking to me, and he's talking to you if you're a Christian. This is our duty and responsibility. Therefore, like John, we must know the scriptures. We must know the Christ so that we can point men and women to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we praise you. We praise you, Lord, that John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord God, for we know with confidence that you will fully and completely consummate the kingdom on this world. We thank you for inaugurating it through the work of your son. We thank you for the great authority he has now in heaven as he rules and reigns over us by his spirit. Grant us, Lord, an increase of power by your spirit and help us to be witnesses, Lord, here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand and let's sing.